Genesis 37. If you're visiting with us, I don't know if there are any visitors with us this evening. We are working our way through Genesis. We've come to the last section. and We're with Joseph. Joseph has had his dreams and his um, coat of many colors, richly or, or ornamented robe given to him, literally a robe of long sleeves, and his brothers hate him. So we pick the reading up at verse 12, Genesis 37 and verse 12. This is the word of God. Now his people had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. But they saw him in the distance. And before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and, and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites going from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he's our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, we found this, examine it to see if it is your son's robe. He recognized it. It's my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and mourned for a son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning will I go down 
to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. <coughs> Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. And we thank God for this intriguing story. Um, I remember my father used to read us stories when we were boys. Uh, Richard and myself would sit on, on a leg each and he would read us stories from a little red uh, Bible storybook. Um, and we found it there when we were clearing out mom's house and there it was. Um, it, was it seemed to me to be a massive big book, but actually it was a small one. But that was our favorite story. Um, the reason being each of us wanted to be able to throw the rest of the brothers into a pit. <laughs> it wasn't because of the gospel that was in it or not, but uh, had that kind of deja vu uh, situation when I found the book or saw the book recently at home and then uh, reading this week in preparation for. So once again, let's pray, asking God to bless us as we Look at these verses together. It's a big, long section, and hopefully a blessing to us all. Lord, lead us in our study tonight. We don't want to listen to a man spouting. We want to hear you speaking. And so we come with humble ears open and hearts ready to listen. Lord, speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in this final section of Genesis. It's also the longest section. After creation, the beginning of Genesis, we see how sin introduced chaos to everything and to everyone. But since chapter 12, God has been creating a covenant people for himself by making a new relationship, a covenant relationship with Abraham, which then passed on to Isaac and then on to Jacob, and is going to be passed down through Jacob's children right down through the generations to us. But the covenant promises and the covenant relationship that God has with his people, even in these early days, is under immense attack. Now, most times this attack comes from sinful enemies, but other times the attack comes from the sinful inclination of God's people. They're just silly and stupid. But always what, we're going, what we see and what we continue to see is God's determination to create his covenant people and to keep his covenant promises. He's going to have his way. He will have his way in the end. That's what he keeps saying to us. So the story now largely centers on one son of Jacob, Joseph. And it covers the preservation of God's people and the intervention of God to keep his covenant promises. Now, I think there's three things that we need to keep in mind as we study these last chapters of Genesis. Three things that we've got to keep in mind as we think of how this teaching affects us. And here they are. God is sovereign in your story. As you think about what this means for you, this is what you've got to hold on to. God is sovereign in your story. 
Secondly, you are not central in your story. He is. And thirdly, your story will end in glory. Let's think about these things just for a few moments before we get to the the passage. God is working out his plan all the time. All the time. Now, there are lots of people and lots of influences who have their plans and they're trying to influence you. Um, You can have dictators ruling nations like Russia or you can have demons working in all kinds of ways uh, in society. You can have the woke movement or the LGBTQ movement or the trans activists or you can have communists and fascists or liberals, many different political movements. They've got their plans, they've got their agendas and they want you to submit to those plans and agendas. But what we've got to realize is that God has a plan. God has his agenda. And by the way, these other plans that are active in the world tonight cannot and will not change his plan. In fact, all of those other plans must do and will submit to his plan because in the end, he will have his way because he's sovereign. Remember that. Whatever you're going through, whatever is happening in your family, God is sovereign. That means, of course, that I am not central in my life. He is. My life is not about me. It's all about him. Now, can we grasp that? If the first one is hard, I think the second one is harder to grasp. But if we really want to make sense of the gospel, if we really want to make sense of life, we've got to accept these two things. This means, of course, because I'm not central in my story, he is, I don't need to feel sorry for myself. And yeah, people die. And health deteriorates. And relationships break. And jobs get boring. But you see, it's not really about me and my happiness. It's about Jesus and his glory. Can you grasp that? God is sovereign in your story. You are not central in your story. He is. And then thirdly, your story will end in glory. We have no idea about tomorrow, do we? We haven't a clue what's going to happen in the next chapter of our story. But we do know there will be a last chapter. We don't know about tomorrow, but we know about the end. Joseph had no idea what's going to happen next, but he knew that the end will come. And so it is for us. And so tonight... In these verses, verse 12 to 36, we see Joseph's dreams become a nightmare. But even in the nightmare, God is sovereign. He's central in the life of Joseph, and it will end in glory. There's a kind of rope around Joseph's neck 
that as time goes by, seems to get tighter and tighter and tighter. Soon he's going to be a slave. And then he's going to be a prisoner. And after the, the mistreatment, everything seems to be a disaster in his life. Everybody seems to have created mayhem in Joseph's life. Now, they think about Jacob and his not-so-wise favoritism. You can understand maybe a parent having a child that they love a little bit more for some reason, but to show that so obviously was wrong. Joseph himself was naive in sharing the dreams that God gave to him so unthinkingly, and his brothers were filled with jealousy and hatred. And so last week, that's what we saw, dumbness from the dad, naivety from Joseph, and poisonous jealousy and hatred. It's just a recipe of disaster. But God is in control. God is in control. Whatever, with whomever, wherever, whenever, and any other ever you can think about. He's in control. And he can even use evil for his glory. That's what we've just been singing, sovereign over us. We often say, of course, that these chapters at the end of Genesis are a real living version of Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. See, our lives are not at the mercy of fate or chance or luck. We are God's people, and we're the object of his governing care. So what we're going to try and do tonight is think about these three things in the midst of the story that's revealed here in these verses. And by the way, these three things are also true of the rest of the story, right through to the very end, by the way, which will end in glory as we will see. So what are these things we want to think about? Well, first of all, the frightening isolation that's um, in 12 to 17. Now, it's hard to summarize the substance of this section, but what we need to see here again is God is in control. Now, what do you think of Jacob sending his beloved 17-year-old 50 miles away by himself into the hate-filled company of his brothers to shack him of all places? What do you think? So dumb and dumber, all rolled into one, yeah? But Joseph obeys without question. Very well, he says. That's what he says there in verse 13. Go. And he says, very well. Now, just a little aside there, parents. Be very careful where you allow your teenagers to go. Because there are dangerous places and dangerous people out there. And even though God is sovereign in every situation, it doesn't mean we'd be stupid and dumb. We need to be wise and thoughtful and careful. But control of all the circumstances. However, his plans, of course, what he allows, sometimes what he wills, 
not always built on what is comfortable or easy or rational to us. Yeah, it seems sometimes to be mad chaos when really it is his sovereign care worked out. So Joseph goes to Shechem about 50 miles away and he's redirected to Dothan another 15 miles, 65 miles away, far from home, far from the, I suppose, the safe umbrella of his father's care. And it's in Dothan that Joseph faced his first major crisis. Now, Derek Kidner points out that another Old Testament saint faced a major crisis at Dothan. Does anybody, can anybody remember who that person is, that Old Testament hero? I hear it. Oh, say it out loud. Elisha. Elisha. 2 Kings 6. Elisha found himself surrounded by horses and chariots of the, um, the armies of, of the king of Syria. His servant is absolutely terrified, terrified out of his mind. This is what we read. Elisha prayed and said, O oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold the mountains were filled with the horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. You see, God is always in control if only we could have our eyes open to see what's really going on. When we feel isolated and vulnerable and lonely, and far from home. He's in control. The truth is, God is as much around Joseph in Genesis 37 as he was with Elisha in 2 Kings 6. But what we, what we got to get over as, as the, the people of God now is, is get beyond saying, oh, I know God is in control. We're told God is in control. We've got to get beyond just saying it. We have got to believe it. We've got to mean it. And we've got to act upon it. So do you feel, do you feel tonight kind of out of it? hard to put into words, but you mean out of it, just there's something big missing, lonely, vulnerable, even when you're in church, you can feel isolated. Listen, it, it could be just times moving on, things at home are changing, perhaps a a loved one has emigrated or a, a firstborn is going to head to university in, in September and you're not looking forward to it or it could be as simple as a wee one going to uh, school in September. But you feel isolated, alone, searching, We've got to rest in God's sovereign control. Not just believe it in our heads, but in our hearts rest upon it. 
That's what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus because he's sovereign in our frightening isolation. What about the brutal mistreatment that we see in this long section, verse 18 to 30? Again, God is in control and Joseph is in the pit. And maybe, of course, that's exactly how you feel tonight. You're in a pit of despair, uh, perhaps a pit of boredom with your job, a job that you hate, Maybe it's the pit of a a loveless marriage, the pit of um, declining health. There's no end to the pits that are in this broken world. See, as we thought about in the catechism, the miseries of life create pit after pit after pit. James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary, puts it out, like this, the, the mistreatment that was inflicted upon Joseph by his brothers, the, the root of it was envy, the shoot of it was anger, and the fruit of it was murder. And we might ask ourselves, how, how could it end up like this? How could brothers do that to a, a young brother? But we've, we've got to see the danger, the danger of hatred, jealousy, and selfishness. Look where it can lead to. And we might ask them the question, well, why such hatred? Well, Jacob gave him the coat and God gave him the dreams, but their response was just disproportionate. Here's how one commentator put it. Hatred doesn't need a reason. All it needs is a corner of a selfish heart in which to germinate. Hatred doesn't need a reason. All it needs is a corner of a selfish heart in which to germinate. If you've got a selfish heart and we let a little corner of it over to hatred, it will grow and grow and grow. And so the seeds of hatred are sown into hearts that are willing to hate. So if you've got hate tonight for someone, it's because you've allowed that hatred to grow. So if you hate someone tonight, then repent and learn to love. And certainly do that before you come to the table. If you are hated tonight, then examine yourself and see what you can do to be unhated. Do you understand? Because sometimes we create the atmosphere where someone can hit us just by being us. As we thought about this morning, the gospel changes us and changes our ways But even if we are under, if we're the butt of brutal mistreatment, remember God is in control. God is at work. Now now plan A was was very simple. Verse 20, murder. Uh, Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say the ferocious animal devoured him. Plan B comes from Reuben, verse 21 and 22. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life. 
don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. And then we're given the reason. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. Now, Reuben, of course, is no saint. We saw that recently. He had sinned, excuse me, dear me, he sinned greatly um, against his dad and his dad's concubine in chapter 35. But doesn't mean he couldn't show compassion. It doesn't mean he couldn't do the right thing because he does the right thing. But look at 23 to 25. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they threw him, took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat their meal. They stripped him. They threw him into the cistern. No water in it, but plenty of rocks to hurt him. And then, what did they do? They sat down to have their Chinese. I mean, can can you think of how brutal and depraved these boys are? How How could they have let this happen? But who's in control? despite everything. Plan C is proposed by Judah in verses 25 to 28. Basically, you know, let's make some money out of this. You know, show me, show me your money, he says to the Midianites. And he sold for 20 shekels or shekels of silver. Let's make some cash. And they did. Joseph began the day as a prince, and he ended it as a slave. Now, the word mistreatment there seems a soft word, too soft a word to use when fists and and beating up and blood are all involved. But that's the, the best I could come up with. We asked the question, though, was where was God? Maybe that's a question you often ask. Maybe you're being, in a sense, mistreated at home or in your workplace or among friends. And it's hard, isn't it? It's cruel, it's painful, it's confusing. But I say again, we must understand, we must believe God is in control. And the story is not about you. And your story will end in glory. There are times I'm sure, like me, you want to to scream out, if only people knew what really happened. If, if people only knew what I'm going through, if, if only people knew what, what they're really like, God is in control. And there's no pit deep enough or wide enough or long enough to hide you from him. The third thing we see is this cruel deceit in verses 31 to 33 
Then they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered the goat, dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornamented robe back to his father and said, we find this, examine it to see if it's your son's robe, not even our brother's robe, your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animals devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. See, God is in control even when lies are, are told. One of the commentators put like this, the robe began in deep love, then it was torn in deep hate, and now it is used as the main tool for deep deception. They used the very thing that they hated. Remember we saw that last week? They hated the robe. Now they used it to tell a lie to their father. And for 20 years, they kept that lie alive. You see, it's extremely difficult to commit just one sin. We'd like to think um, we can do that, but we, we tend to have to protect our sins. And normally, we have to use deceit. We, we tend to cover up our sins by telling lies. It's easy, it's natural, and you know what? It tends to work, doesn't it? But what we can't see is the cost of using deceit. Because what happens is our conscience is damaged, our testimony is marred, and those who live by deceit eventually show it as they drift away from the things of God, and it becomes clear in their lack of joy, and their lack of fruitfulness, and their lack of usefulness. It just becomes so clear. So I ask you this question tonight. Do you lie? I mean, do you use deceit to get yourself out of trouble or to get others into trouble? Or, or here's another question. Are you a victim of liars? People have deceived others about you. Well, here's the good news. Two new good news is God is in control. Yes. But realize this. One day the truth will be revealed. In the case of Jacob and Joseph, it took 20 years. 20 years. But the truth came out. And for you, it may be actually the last day. It may be the last day, but the books will be opened. God is in control, even when people resort to lying. Fourthly, and lastly, the painful mourning, verses 34 and 35. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for a son many days. And all his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning will I go down to the grave and to my son. So his father wept for him. God is in control even here, especially here. Now, most of us have uh, faced the death of a loved one. And if because of age you haven't yet done that, I'm sorry to have to tell you, it will come. Death is a horrible physical experience. But for the believer, it's a wonderful end and a coming home. 
for the believer. But for those of us who are left behind, the sting of death is really sharp. It can be deep sorrow, painful mourning. That was the case for Jacob, relentless sorrow. Notice how he mourned, verse 34, many days. He refused to be comforted, verse 35. He claimed he was going to mourn until the day he died, verse 35. But sadly, Jacob mourned with, without hope. And that's the way the world mourns, you see. The Christians should not mourn like this. Why? Because of what we will be celebrating at the table in a few moments' time. Because of the one who has defeated death. The one who will take us home. Because this is not our home. Because this is not my story. It's his story. And his story, my story, our story, will end in glory. We have a living hope and we have the powerful promise that's in the death and resurrection of Jesus. We have one who is greater than death and him. So let's live and die in the power of the gospel and in the, the certain hope of eternal life and in the assurance of salvation. And let's not grieve like those who have no hope because God is in control. Verse 36 is the conclusion. And here we begin to see, actually, the sovereignty of God. Meanwhile, while all of this is going on, what's happening to Joseph? The Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Sold and yet safe in the sovereign control of God. The awesome God of all history is always at work, always in control, and here we begin to see God's plan for his people through Joseph and through Egypt. Because the reality is this, Israel's human savior was in exactly the right place, Egypt, to do what he had to do. And we will see God work through Joseph to save a nation, that's right at the end of the story. Because God is in control of everything. Whatever is going on in your life. Now think of the catalog of the difficult and painful issues that, that um, Joseph faced. Favoritism, mistreatment, Jealousy and lies, rage and beatings, the agonizing trip to Egypt, naked humiliation as he stood on a slave block in Egypt, enough to break any mature man, let alone a 17-year-old boy. But there's not a hint given to us that Joseph felt sorry for himself. No self-pity. He didn't play the victim card. But Kent Hughes correctly points out that victimhood is all in in the modern world in which we live in. People glorying in their self-pity. Poor me, why me? There's a cry of so many. I know because I've said it. And I reckon I'm not unique here in that. 
Now, we don't minimize the hurt experience. We don't suggest that hurt is not real. We're not saying that. But we don't want to allow victimhood to enslave our souls. Because that's neither biblical or spiritual or Christian. So why is it that I so easily slip into self-pity and victimhood? When I face isolation or mistreatment or deceit or mourning, why is it I so easily slip into self-pity? Can you think why I do that and why you do it too? It's because we forget about those three things. That's why. We forget that God is in control of our story. We forget that we are not the center of the universe. We're not even the center of our own story. He is. We forget that our story, in fact, is going to end in glory. Life is a pain. It's full of misery. It's unfair. It's filled with sin and sinners. But life in Christ, you see, brims full of salvation and hope and power. The alternative is we feel sorry for ourselves. We fight against the sovereign plan of God. We question him and doubt him. And we just add to the misery. Or we say, God, you're sovereign. You're central. And you're going to give. You're going to give the answer of glory in the end. God is sovereign in your story. You are not central in your story. He is. Now, where do we see he here? Well, you've got to think and you've got to look, but he is in the story. Jesus is in the story. Do you see him? The parallels between Joseph and Jesus are very clear because this story, like every story, your story, my story, the story of everyone is ultimately about him because both, of course, Joseph and Jesus were sent by their father. Jesus was sent by God the Father. Joseph was sent by Jacob. Both were rejected by their brothers. Jesus, as John says, came to his own and his own received him not. Joseph was rejected by his brothers. Both were betrayed for money. Jesus was betrayed by Judas for a few coins. And Joseph was betrayed by Judah for the same. Jesus faced frightening isolation in the garden. Brutal mistreatment before the cross, which we will remember very shortly. Cruel deceit as they told lies about him. Ultimately died on the cross, rose on the third day. He knows all about everything. But you see, God's plan was to save his family through Joseph. And he did. God's plan is to save us 
through Jesus. And he will. If you put your trust and faith in him. So tonight, there are two types of people in this building. Those who are saved. You've got to know, brother, sister, God is sovereign. You're not central. And it's going to end in glory. But if you're not saved... If you're not saved, you are in serious trouble. But Jesus makes you a serious offer. Come and be saved. Come into my family. Confess your sin. Repent of it. Become my child. And experience my sovereign rule. Experience my life in you. And one day, experience glory. That's the gospel. And we thank God for it. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for the gospel. We confess that so often we slip into um, self-pity and forget. We forget the gospel. Lord, you are sovereign over us. You are the focus of the story. You are the one who will give us glory. Thank you. And we pray that as we come to the table shortly, we will know this in our hearts and minds. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.